0: Good morning, church. Good to see you all. And um, children, we thought you were going to sing one more round, so we missed our chance to tell you how much we appreciated you singing. So we want to do that right now. Thank you for singing for us. Thanks to that uh, crew of Vacation Bible School volunteers and And students in the communication department putting together such a beautiful video to celebrate what we give to. And thank you for your generosity already in this past year and uh, leaning into fear and leaning toward the kingdom. Thank you for giving of yourselves and and of your time and talents as well. Would you please turn with me to Revelation 19? In God's sense of humor, after we had a family wedding this weekend, my daughter Abby was married. In God's sense of humor, he brought us, brought me to Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb this morning. So I may blubber through the whole sermon. Just read the text if I break down, and you'll get something anyway this morning. But we've been looking at Revelation, if you're new to us, and we've seen that it breaks down into four sections. The first section is that the king teaches us in chapters 1 through 3. In the longest section, chapters 4 through 16, the king protects us. That's where we are now. We're in this battle, making our way to heaven, and we need to know the king's protection. We've been meditating on that for many chapters. And now we're in uh, the third section. The king liberates us. He will liberate us. From all of our enemies, all of his enemies, he is doing so now as he enables us to battle through this world. We're on the tail end of that focus on liberation, but John can't contain his enthusiasm for the fourth section. He breaks out even into chapter 19 with that fourth section, which is going to be the king celebrates us. He celebrates us now, and he will celebrate us when. We have the wedding supper of the Lamb. When He comes and retrieves us and wraps up all of history for the praise of His glorious grace, He will throw a great supper. I have to confess that I've had to refocus on this text after this weekend. I can only think of how much Jesus is going to spend on this dinner. I'm glad He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and I, th- I kind of feel sorry for Jesus. I say, you know, we could just have a drop-in. You don't have to go all out. You've done so much for us for millennia. But he insists on throwing a big dinner, no holes barred, because he celebrates us. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus, your Savior, not only loves you, but he likes you? And if you've never known that kind of love in a Savior, today is the day you need to meet Him as He holds His hands open to you wide today and says, come to me now that you may be with me then. We begin reading in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 19, <clears throat> the first 10 verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants." to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brother's who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. A long time ago, a, a really young couple came to ask me to do their wedding. They remain the youngest couple I've ever married. They were sophomores in college. It's a special young lady to me. I'd watched her grow up in our church. Her mother had come to our church, a single mom, with this little girl, born out of wedlock, didn't know Jesus, and that mother and her little girl experienced the love of Jesus in the arms of that congregation. She embraced Christ as her Savior taught her little girl to do the same. The Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and, and vacation Bible school leaders and, and elders and deacons, the congregation warmly embraced that little girl and mom, and, and she grew up in the faith. She went off to college, got involved in the campus ministry, soon fell in love with another young man who was related to our church. And uh, they determined early on that they needed to get married. They read that scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, better to marry than to burn. So they decided that they should get married. I did their counseling, and they were so honest, so honest vulnerable. And they uh, didn't know enough but to do everything I told them to do. At one point they said, you know what, we think we just don't, we have so little money, we think we, we should move in together. We should have rent a house together in college. We'll be in separate bedrooms, but uh, we will, we think it'll be well. I said, you can't do that. D- don't, no, don't do that. That's not a good idea. Really? No, it's not a good idea. You won't be able to resist the temptation. Just, just, just trust me. God will provide. Okay. Oh, if everyone were like that. Then later they realized what I was talking about. They called me and they said, we, we can't keep our hands off each other. The temptation is too great. What are we to do? You just have call, people call you, hold you accountable. Stay away from each other after dark. Hang on. Because, here's the deal, yes, Jesus forgives, and Jesus has wired you to move toward each other, but you need to hang on because you don't want to jeopardize your sexual experience in marriage. Trust me, it'll be more special, and trust me, you don't want regrets at your wedding day. God forgives, yes, but look, you just, just believe me. You will you will. Appreciate it when I say that on your wedding day you have kept yourselves pure for each other. Okay, he said. Well, the day came. Finally, the day arrived. And uh, this young man, so obedient, was looking at me. I told him at rehearsal, look at me and do what I tell you to do. He was look, looking at me during the wedding. And uh, he said just before, just before we went out, he said, now, I'm supposed to keep my eyes locked on you the entire service, right? And I said, no. Look, I said, what's going to happen is the music's going to swell, and uh, then they're going to throw the doors open in the back, and the most beautiful creature you have ever seen is going to appear there. That's going to be your bride. And you're going to figure out why I fussed at you for staying pure. Okay. Well, the doors opened. I told him, turn around. And when he did, he melted. You've seen it a hundred times. But then when he turned back around and both of them locked eyes with me, it said everything. It was worth it. This is what Jesus has been saying to us in the book of Revelation. It's what he says to us throughout Scripture. I know it's hard to trust me when I tell you don't do that or do this. I know at times you think, how could you be so narrow-minded and restrict my fun? Uh, But about all kinds of things. But trust me. The day is going to come when I fling open the doors and you will be presented in fine linen, bright and clean, given you to wear, and I'm going to welcome you home. When I come, you want to meet me unashamed. You won't be perfect. But endure as you can with my help through this world, trusting me, even when it doesn't make sense, because the day is coming of celebration and you want to meet it with your best Jesus proves his love to us once again in this passage and this passage like every other passage of scripture even the toughest ones about his judgment tell us what this angel told John when he was bowing before him or tried to bow before him in verse 10 the angel tells uh, John look this is not about me Every prophecy of Scripture, every word of Scripture is about Jesus. That's what verse 10 mean, mean. Every verse from chapter 1, verse 1 of, 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 of Revelation, of Genesis, to the end, every verse is pointing to Christ. No sermon is a Christian sermon unless it's been made clear how it connects to Jesus Christ, including these words of judgment and these words of celebration. It's all about Jesus and specifically how the Father has loved us in Jesus. And he says it in two ways in this passage. We've seen it again and again. He tells us he loves us by judging sin. First of all, he tells us he loves us by judging sin. Verses 1 through 5. Now you see, that's counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense. How could he love us and judge sin? Doesn't real love just to turn a blind eye, to wink at it? No, he loves you too much to allow you and me to continue in sin because sin is always a departure from who we are made to be in the image of God. To sin against any of the commands of God is to dehumanize ourselves and dehumanize other people. To sin is to live in, 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 in a lesser way than he desires for us, which is to flourish and thrive according to the way he made us to live. In each of these points, I want to review with you under the way he loves us, three things, his standards, his strategy, and the spiritual attitude it's supposed to produce. So if... Jesus proves his love for us by judging sin. What are the standards by which he judges sin, by which he judges what is right and wrong? He judges by truth and justice. That's in verses two through four. His judgments are true. His judgments are just. You can't Understand love. You cannot feel love. You cannot believe that God loves you unless you understand and believe with conviction that His love is based on His truth and justice. Isn't it refreshing in this world as we have learned more and more recently how profitable misinformation and disinformation are It's it's very profitable to traffic in lies. We've learned that with the the algorithms of of social media. We we learn it with with the way we've observed people uh, losing their civility in public discussion. That it is it is it it is a, a, a lack of truth. It is misinformation, disinformation, evil propaganda. That, that brings prosperity. And so we wonder where in the world is the truth? And we're living in a day when truth is not governed by a transcendent standard, namely God speaking through His Word, but rather through an antichrist spirit that is governed by materialism and, uh, and politicization. And so, uh, scientists and, and economists and politicians and even preachers and Christians are intimidated or threatened with being pushed to the sidelines, ignored, called fanatics and crazy if they adhere to the truth of God's Word and what it says about ethics or about the way we engage with one another, and adhere to what it does not say and where it gives us liberty. It should be refreshing to us to know that God loves us so much he's given us the truth about everything we need to know, and that that we do not need to know about, he doesn't burden us with. That's exactly what Jesus said in John 14. Remember when he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also? If it were not true, I would have told you so. In other words, I tell you everything that you need. I tell you the truth about everything you need to know for life and godliness. And what I haven't explained to you and what I haven't told you, you don't need to worry about. What refreshing news that is, that he, he loves us by giving us the truth. And what refreshing truth it is that he is just. That's the word here. I didn't import it here. This is just. Justice. The Lord loves justice, he says elsewhere in Scripture. If there is a proof that a spirit of antichrist is dominating in our culture, it is that people have tried to forbid us from speaking the truth about justice. Intimidating us not to use that word. If you use that word justice, then you are undermining Scripture. Well, here's the proof of whether or not you're using the word justice as the way the Bible uses it. Justice is righteousness. Justice is everything that conforms to the character of God, including its social entailments. Yes, he tells us how to treat each other. Justice is God's righteousness. And here is the, here is the proof For when someone is speaking about God's justice or about some caricature of justice that they have invented, invented, does it make them more loving or does it make them more hateful? Has there been any more telling revelation about how we have allowed ourselves to be intimidated by the world by getting so angry every time someone uses the word justice? But our definition of justice comes from Scripture. It is based and rooted and founded on the character of God and His righteousness. It is the way He treats us. It is the way He commands us to treat one another. What refreshment that God and His standards are truth and justice. And He will avenge all who who are persecuted in the name of Christ. That's in verse 2. We saw it also in chapter 18. No matter how you are mistreated for your faith now, you have this confidence that someday he will, by truth and justice, avenge all of his and all our enemies. This hallelujah, by the way, is only used. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And look at what hallelujah is reserved for. Hallelujah. God is the one who will bring, who will judge by truth and righteousness. Hallelujah. God is the one who will conquer all of his enemies. Hallelujah. He is the one who will gather us before his throne in worship. And hallelujah, he will robe us in the righteousness of the Son and celebrate with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. These standards should refresh us. It's what the world is crying out for, to be loved like this. I read recently an interview with Vince Gilligan, who's the creator of Breaking Bad, a television series about a man named Walter White who, who was a school teacher and found that he could make more money making meth, and, and then it shows his devolution, his depravity as he gets more and more into that world, gives himself more and more to that world. Vince Gilligan imagines in the fourth season that Walt, Walter White kills somebody. It gets to the point that he's going to kill people who get in his way. And to help him murder someone, he recruits a younger accomplice named Jesse Pinkman. Jesse Pinkman's conscience is not as scarred as Walter, so he goes to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting one night because his conscience is so burdened, he goes to this meeting to try to find relief for his conscience, and there he, he doesn't confess to a murder, he confesses to something like uh, brutally killing a dog or something like that. And the therapist says, we're not here to judge you. We don't sit in judgment over you. That's not why we're here. We're here to help facilitate your learning self-acceptance. We, you need to accept yourself and love yourself and forgive yourself. And Jesse Pinkman loses it. Why not? Why are you not here to judge me? Why not? Do I just go on doing stuff as if nothing happens? What's it all mean? What's the point of it all? So no matter what I do, how horrifying a person I am, how many dogs I kill, do I just take an inventory of them? And then at the end of the day, hooray, I say for myself, because I'm such a good guy. What's the point of it all? He storms out of the room. Vince Gilligan, in this interview, explained a scene like that he said if there's a larger lesson to breaking bad it's that actions have consequences I feel some sort of need for like a biblical atonement or justice or something in this world I want to believe in heaven but I can't not believe in hell There he reveals the conscience that God has imprinted on every image bearer of God saying, if I follow my worldview to the end, which is live and let live, my standards are fluctuating, nobody has any right to say that anything is truth or justice, then if I follow the end of that, it's absolute chaos and there's no protection for me. And ultimately, there is no assurance of love. Oh, if there were only a force out there that was true and just. And would bring justice, and at the great day, a greater size, so that those who are robed in righteousness go to heaven and those who refuse it go to hell. There is. It's Jesus Christ. He loves us by the standards of truth and righteousness. His strategy is to get us to heaven. Salvation, verse 1. Salvation in Scripture is not just when you initially walk the aisle or initially give your heart to Christ. Salvation is the whole process of getting you from conversion into heaven. Isaiah says we're walled in by salvation. Sometimes you feel like you're claustrophobic, I can't get away. Everybody's telling me what to do. When I try to do the wrong thing, somebody's in my life. I've got this nosy church I've joined. They don't allow me to just go off and do whatever I want to do. I've got all these people holding me accountable. The preacher singles me out every Sunday morning. He preaches just to me. What kind of cult is this? No, it's not a cult. It's the love of Christ saying, not this way, but that way. I'm walling end to get you home in salvation and so what's the response to be verse 5 what's the spiritual attitude it is fear not servile fear but again this is a biblical word that has to be redefined it's not afraid a fear that god is going to destroy you or judge you or make bad things happen to you if you're not perfect this instead is the fear of love the fear of disappointing one who has loved you this much. If you saw the, the wonderful worship service, the funeral service of Colin Powell the other day, you heard his son Michael Powell said he was a military warrior in public but not in our home. He led us by grace and love. The only sense in which we feared our parents was fear the fear of disappointing them. That's what it is to live with Christ. It is to say, I love you. You have loved me so much. I love you so much that what I want to do is to glorify you. I don't want to disappoint you. He proves his love for you by judging sin, and he proves his love for you if Christ is your Savior, by marrying sinners. Notice all of the the different phenomena of creation. He grabs hold of the loudest phenomena of creation and gathers them up into one picture and says, this is how loud it's going to be. It's going to be louder than that. This expression of Jesus' joy over our coming home. I saw this once in a documentary about that, the greatest sports tragedy in history, the the uh, trampling to death of the 96 uh, fans for the Liverpool soccer team, and the 27th anniversary of that tragedy, a uh, Borussia Dortmund of Germany was playing Liverpool, and spontaneously the crowd broke into, you'll never walk alone. With hope in your heart, walk on, walk on, you'll never walk alone. 42,000 fans, German and English, singing all together, you'll never walk alone. It was deafening. Even that expression of love and unity cannot approach the loud sounds of Jesus and his angels as he welcomes you and me home. What are the standards of that love? What does it take to make it into heaven, to, receive, to experience that marriage supper of the Lamb? What do you have to do? There's only one thing you can do. It's to receive the gift of His righteousness. The fine linen, bright and clean, at the end of verse 8, that is given you to wear. The deeds of righteousness given to you by Christ who has lived and died in your place. It is to receive His righteousness. Say, there's no way I can make it into heaven on my own. I must receive by faith what you did to die to save me from judgment and what you did by, by living to fulfill all of your righteous commandments. You receive it today. And when you receive it, the promise is that at that day you will be dressed appropriately. You know, the word bride is not it's not the usual word here. It's the woman. The woman, there is a Greek word for bride, but this is this word is woman. Meaning, this woman, this human being, these human beings, Christians, will be made absolutely perfect. You'll not be—you'll not just be dressed up, but you will be perfectly conformed to the perfect human being, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ will marvel at the transformation the perfection that He has worked in your life. Yes, it is important for us to make ourselves ready. This bride made herself ready. It is important for us to obey. It is incumbent on us to repent. And how do those two fit together? We're always talking about that theologically, aren't we? We're saying, where does free will and predestination fit together? Where does God's enablement leave off and our responsibility take over? Those are great conversations in theological context, but they never explain what we can explain in relational terms. Here's, here's the way it is it's, the way we begin, are empowered to live the Christian life, is because we are first loved by Jesus. And then we struggle to love Him in return, and He atones for where we fall short. All right, I can see that's not connecting either. So here's another example. All right, I've seen this over and over. A little boy, it's always a little boy. The girls don't mess this up. Little boys. They're so overcome with love for their mommy, they decide to pick some flowers for her, for her special day. And what do they pick? Johnson grass. Poison ivy. Maybe some Queen Anne's lace. They bring it to Mom. She's always wise enough not to touch the poison ivy. She gets the Johnson grass. She'll get the bitter weed, whatever else is in the hand. She'll put it in a vase. And then she adds the beautiful flowers around it. That's what it is for the bride to make herself ready and Jesus to give righteousness. It is to respond. He loves us first. And we respond to that love and we do our best and it's fumbling and bumbling and imperfect and Christ robes the rest. He atones for the rest, makes our faltering works acceptable in the Father's sight. That's the relationship. Those are the standards. The strategy It's to motivate us and enable us with love. And the spiritual attitude, what is it? It's everywhere in this passage. It's in verse 9. It's in verse uh, 5. It is happiness. It is praise for the Lord. When you live in this kind of love, he has married me. He has chosen to make me his bride, to make me his child, to make me his beloved. He loves me and he likes me. He approves of me, not because of who I am naturally, but because he makes me approving. And I am therefore joyful. We can't commend the gospel with dour, fearful attitudes. We can't commend the gospel with bitterness about whatever is happening in our culture. We commend the kingdom of God because, by joy because the kingdom of God is not about laws for eating and drinking. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is this. What will make the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb, so beautiful is that the love of Christ will be displayed as ineffably splendid because he set his love on us. Unworthy brides. People no one else would love. He, he filmed the wedding supper of the Lamb before the world was even made. He wrote down this revelation of how it's all going to end before we were even born. So that means knowing full well how unworthy we would be, how we would sin, how we would rebel, how ungrateful we would be, how we would treat each other, he nevertheless chose to marry us and is preparing a very expensive celebration for us someday. So expensive, it cost his own righteous blood. I saw this in a friend of mine a number of years ago kim was my friend who lived in philadelphia she was an accomplished physician brilliant she was very active and an officer in her church she was involved in foreign missions she was generous she was a she was an athlete she was fun and joyful and vibrant her best days seemed to be ahead of her soon after she turned 40, even to the point that a man who had she had once been in a relationship with and they thought that was over, he came back into Philadelphia, they, they were reacquainted and they, there were sparks of love again. Everything seemed to be absolutely perfect. It couldn't get any more wonderful. And then she got the dreaded news that she was dying of cancer. A very aggressive, fast-growing cancer for which there was no cure, and she would be dead in a number of weeks. Her friend was sitting with her one day in her living room, He got down on one knee and he opened up a little box and he said, Kim, will you marry me? She was completely caught off guard. She grabbed his hand. She had already been to the place where she was mostly bedridden, she'd had to leave everything her practice, her the things that she found fun, her involvement in church. She grabbed his hand and put it on her stomach and she said, do you feel that? Those are the tumors that are going to kill me. Do you know what you're doing? I'm going to be dead in a few weeks. You can't marry me. I am going to marry you. Will you marry me? She had enough strength for the wedding. She had enough strength for a little vacation. She came home in a few weeks, went to heaven. Kim may have had many doubts about God, about His providence, but she never once doubted that her husband loved her. You have many doubts, many questions. How could God allow this or that? What is happening in our world? What's going to happen in the future? But this you must never doubt. Jesus loves you. The Bible tells you so. He tells you by the way he promises to rule the world in truth and justice. The Bible tells you so by the promise that he will marry you. He will marry you. He will get you home. And there will be a great celebration. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, take us in our frailty, we pray. Our faith is weak. We have so many questions, so many doubts, so many fears, so many judgments, so many broken relationships, so many trials, but your love is so much greater. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We pray that you would capture us with it afresh this day by the assurance of your grace, your salvation, the coming celebration, and we pray there would not be one person who leaves this sanctuary or the sound of my voice today without surrendering fully to Jesus Christ and receiving his free gift of righteousness. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.